Hello and welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, an update on a big climate case that's been ongoing for about seven years now. It's probably the best known of all of the climate cases, the Juliana case, or officially Juliana versus the United States. In this case, 21 young plaintiffs sued the U.S. government over climate change. It's often been misreported that they sued the government for inaction on climate, but that's not actually what they said. In fact, the plaintiffs sued the government for effectively enabling and accelerating climate change via policies that support and encourage more and more fossil fuel extraction. So fossil fuel subsidies or highway bills that make the country dependent on cars, anything that basically encourages more emissions. That's not just me being all well actually, although, okay, fine, I do like to do that sometimes. It is actually a really important distinction. Here's Julia Olson, the lead attorney on the case, to explain. So the case is about the government's affirmative acts that have put these young people in a position of danger and continue to act in ways that are enhancing the danger for young people. As a lawyer, I'm looking at the party most responsible for causing the harm, and I'm also looking at the the remedy that's available to really stop the climate emergency from worsening and to begin to redress it so that we can protect these fundamental life support resources for these young people. And when I look at the party most responsible, it is the United States government historically and presently because of the government's creation of, promotion of, support of a national fossil fuel energy system. Some lawyers, especially those going up against the oil companies themselves, have criticized the Juliana case for being too broad or for taking the spotlight off of the fossil fuel industry. But Olson doesn't see the two as mutually exclusive. And having covered the climate crisis for more than 20 years now, I kind of tend to agree. Seems to me like there's plenty of accountability to go around. The Juliana case was originally filed in 2015, and in 2021, it it looked like it was dead in the water. Back in 2020, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the plaintiffs didn't have standing to bring this case. So the plaintiffs asked for what's called an en banc rehearing. That's a request that a full panel of judges, so in this case, 11 judges, look at a case, not just the three who happened to review it the first time. They asked for that in 2020, and in early 2021, the Ninth Circuit said, nope, we're not going to rehear it. Our decision is our decision. So a lot of folks thought this case was done for. But the Ninth Circuit issued a mandate to send the case back to district court in Oregon. So now it's back in front of Judge Aiken. And at that point, we decided that the, the best path forward and sort of the most efficient path path forward to get to a ruling in the case and to get to trial was to amend the complaint. We're going to get into how the complaint was amended, what's happened since then, and what's going on with youth climate cases in general right now. That's all coming up right after this quick break. 
Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so back in 2021, Olson and her team filed an amended complaint, and the Juliana case got a second life. So we amended our complaint, and we changed the request for relief at the end. We took out the specific request for the court to order a plan be prepared on fixing the climate crisis. and. And we really refocused our requests for relief on what's called declaratory judgment. So asking the court in the first place to just declare the constitutional rights and say whether the government has violated those constitutional rights of these young people. And so the request for relief focuses on that. It does also ask the court to award plaintiffs any other relief that the court finds is appropriate or necessary after a trial is held and all the evidence comes out. Um, so we, we did that and then we added new factual allegations to the body of the complaint. And we connected the dots better to say, hey, you know, one big part of the injury here is that the U.S. government is saying to young people that they don't have constitutional rights. They are saying that it's totally within the law for them to continue to promote fossil fuel energy, that that's okay to do. And so there's a real controversy there. And if the court resolves that controversy in favor of these young people and says that that conduct is unconstitutional, you know, that the fossil fuel energy policies and practices of the United States government are unconstitutional, then that changes this whole legal relationship between these young people and their government. And then the government can't keep saying, oh, we can keep promoting fossil fuels. We can permit all of this. We can lease public lands for fossil fuel extraction. That's totally within our right they will be wrong at that point and then things will really begin to change. And so we we said in the complaint that if the court issues that declaration of constitutional law, that the federal government will abide by it and they will begin to change the way our energy system is run in our country. That actually feels like a pretty huge deal, especially as we've been watching the Biden administration struggle to change any policies at all with respect to climate and fossil fuels. 
One of the first things the district court judge in Oregon, who's overseeing this case, Judge Aiken, did was to order Olson and her team to have a settlement conference with the U.S. Department of Justice to see if they could work out a settlement agreement instead of taking this case back to court. June 23rd was our first settlement conference, and June 25th was the oral argument on the motion to amend. So we've had one settlement conference, and what happens in those conversations has to be kept confidential. It's the way settlement negotiations work. It frees the parties to talk freely with the settlement judge and to not disclose that conversation publicly. So I can't talk about the content. That was Julia Olson talking to me back in July when the team had just had one settlement conference and gone through oral arguments on this new amended complaint. The reason I wanted to talk to her back then, kind of in the middle of all of this process, was that something really strange happened as that first settlement conference was getting underway. The Attorney General of Alabama, joined by a Republican Attorneys General from 16 other states, filed a motion to intervene in this case. And that means we got to talk about RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association. RAGA was started back in the 1990s as a reaction to the tobacco litigation. That litigation had been started mostly by Democratic attorneys general, and Republicans took a look at the legal landscape in the country and realized that they were vastly outnumbered by Democrats in state attorneys general offices. That was something that was going to need to change if they were going to avoid states going after an industry ever again. So the attorneys general of Alabama, Texas, and South Carolina came together and created RAGA. And then they set about getting Republican attorneys general elected. I had looked at this back when I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of this, the rise of RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, where we know that it's a pay-to-play operation. Lisa Graves ran the Center for Media and Democracy for years and now runs the research firm True North. She's been tracking RAGA since its inception. We know that it's, it's, uh, it has had enormously distorting effect on U.S. law. Um, it provides a mechanism for corporations to pass money through to help uh, attorneys general uh, in ways that they would not be able to individually solicit for their own campaigns, given their role, their regulatory role over those very industries. Um, and that's been going on since RAGA was created back uh, oh, more than 20 years ago now. RAGA now is um, not just a recipient of of donations from big oil and, and uh, big, huge corporations, but it's also a major recipient of funds in, in which the source is completely unknown to anyone other than the person raising the money. The agenda of the people who fund the RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, and have been um, really attempting to work a legal revolution through offices that we would otherwise consider to be independent. It would be nice to have attorneys general of states who um, were not so captive to advancing the interests of Charles Koch. Um, But unfortunately, we are in an era in which those interests um, have been dominating. They successfully took the lead over Democrats several years ago and transitioned to phase two, coordinating on amicus briefs and constitutional cases. 
You definitely know their work, even if you've never heard of Raga before today. Now for an opposing view, we're joined by Ted Cruz. He is the Solicitor General for the state of Texas, and he drafted the amicus brief signed by attorneys general of 31 states who say the D.C. handgun ban should be struck down. More than 100 House Republicans on Thursday signed on to an amicus brief in support of the Texas lawsuit aimed at overturning the election results in four swing states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So, yeah, the same group that's been mobilizing against gun control and abortion for years and that tried to get the 2020 election results overturned all of a sudden showed up in the Juliana case six years after the case was filed. Now, normally when someone files a motion to intervene in a case, they're effectively joining that case as a co-defendant or a co-plaintiff. But in this case, the Republican AGs don't want to be co-defendants with the U.S. government. They only wanted to intervene in certain parts of the proceedings. Here's Julia Olson again. They have a political agenda to, you know, protect gun rights, to put limits on voting rights uh, to stop women from having access to uh, choices about their their health and and childbearing and abortion and they also have a climate agenda and on their climate agenda is the Juliana case and they have decided that this case has a real shot at winning, I think, and and really establishing the constitutional law around the extensive harm being caused by this crisis and by energy policies. Um, so I think they realized that, oh, this, <laughs> this case is going somewhere. And as a result of that, they asked the district court if they could come in and intervene for limited purposes. And so this intervention motion that they filed, it's really bizarre because typically when you have interveners, people who want to come into a case, they either want to come in as a plaintiff or they want to come in as a defendant and they want to participate in a case as a full party. And these attorney generals from these 18 states they aren't asking to come in as a party. They want to come in as sort of an interlocutor to just blow things up. <laughs> they, they, they said very explicitly they want to come and have a seat at the settlement table in order to prevent any settlement from happening. Keep in mind, this motion was filed in June 2021. So the Biden administration was just getting going and it maybe wasn't clear yet what his Department of Justice was going to look like. These attorneys general had no reason to intervene when it was a Trump DOJ dealing with the Juliana case, but now they weren't so sure. And they did not want the government settling with these attorneys and effectively creating a constitutional right to a livable planet in the U.S. According to Julia Olson, they needn't have worried. I actually think the DOJ is not very different at all. And uh, in talking to lawyers in a lot of other cases, um, people aren't seeing a shift in, in the DOJ under the Biden administration and under the leadership of Merrick Garland. 
I, I think they're still taking a lot of the same positions they have taken. And I actually think there's sort of a a dangerous um, backlash happening from what went on during the Trump administration in terms of there was a lot of concern that the president at the time, Trump, was using the Department of Justice to achieve his personal needs. You know, that they, the Attorney General Barr was acting as his private attorney, kind of, you know, that was a lot of the public perception and the concern of Congress and that DOJ was not on the up and up. And so, you know, President Biden has said, we're going to have clear rules and the Department of Justice will have prosecutorial discretion and I'm not going to tell them who to prosecute, right? That's their decision as the people's lawyer. And, And that all makes sense. But when the Department of Justice is defending clients, like different agencies that have been sued by people, then there is a really important role for the executive branch that the political officials and the agencies and the White House to play in how they want to be defended in those cases. Right. So as an attorney, you have an obligation to confer with your client and make recommendations. But at the end of the day, if your client wants to settle or if your client wants to admit facts or your client wants to take a particular legal position, the clients make that decision, not attorneys by themselves. And so I I think the Department of Justice is kind of overreacting or overcorrecting what happened previously. And and in many cases, the the policies of the Biden administration are, are not aligning with what the Department of Justice is doing in cases that have a huge bearing on those policies. Ultimately, it was a moot point. Judge Aiken still hasn't ruled on whether or not the Raga attorneys can intervene, nor has she ruled on the amended complaint. And in the meantime, the settlement conferences have ended with no settlement. I spoke with Olson again this week to get an update. You know, we have filed um, some notices of supplemental authority. There have been some Supreme Court cases that have been decided that we think are favorable to the motion to amend. So, you know, when something arises, some new precedent that binds her, we send that her way. But otherwise, we are just waiting on her decision on that motion to amend, which could come any day now. Mm -hmm. And we also, for about about five months, um, starting in probably July, we were working with magistrate where former magistrate judge Tom Coffin as our settlement judge and engaging in settlement talks with the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And those um, became no, you know, were not fruitful. And so we ended those talks in October. It wasn't part of the Republican attorney general's request was like to be in on those Talks. Yeah, yeah, they wanted they wanted to be able to have a seat at the settlement table, mm-hmm. and you know that question had not been decided, but there was you know no need 
wish I had a seat at that settlement table. The Biden DOJ is is continuing to do its job to fight this case. (laughs) (laughs) And um, at this point, you know, has not shown any non-alignment with the position of the Trump administration or for that matter, the red states. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting because it did seem like that might have been part of the motivation for the the Republican attorneys general, right? Was that they thought, oh, a Biden DOJ is going to settle with them and and that might be bad, but <laughs> they needn't have worried. Um, <laughs> they needn't have worried. <laughs> now Olson and her team are just waiting on a decision from Judge Aiken about whether she's going to accept this amended complaint and whether she'll allow the Raga attorneys to intervene. In addition to wanting to be part of those settlement conferences, the Republican attorneys wanted to be able to weigh in on the amended complaint. Everyone is eagerly awaiting a ruling from Judge Aiken, which could come any day now. All right. I was hopeful that we would have had it before the end of 2021. Um, And I also know that she has a very full docket Mm-hmm. has obviously been impacted by COVID. So right. um, so we are waiting and hopefully she's cleared things out and Juliana will be next up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know, Amy, if you've seen the projections, but the projections from the EIA mm-hmm. are showing, you know, in- continued increases in our oil and gas production and in our emissions. And of course, I think 2021 was like, what, a 6% increase in emissions again? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're we're headed in the exact opposite direction we need to, which is why we need to get back to court and get to trial. In the meantime, several other youth climate cases have been filed all over the world, including a few by Olson and her team, most recently in Mexico and Canada. Olson's happy to see it, but is also concerned about a new and troubling trend she's seeing. Cases pushing for governments to adhere to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, so limiting warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees. But Olson points out that those targets were a political compromise. They're not what science indicates is actually safe. You know, courts, for the most part, judges aren't going to independently read climate science. And so they're going to rely on counsel to bring them the evidence. Right. And when the evidence is coming in and they're saying, you know, you got to go with the Paris Agreement numbers, then judges are doing that. And so there are actually cases now and there's precedent building around the world that to protect human rights um, in whatever iteration the claims are brought, but whatever, wherever that human rights law is in a particular country, whether it's in an international t- treaty or in a constitution or codified in some other place, they're linking it now to those 1.5 and 2 degrees C numbers, just, which is catastrophic for humanity and for young people. And, you know, it's my experience that most lawyers and even a lot of journalists don't understand that the, the foundational science is about Earth's energy imbalance, right? Because as long as we have an energy imbalance, that the planet's going to keep heating. Right. And this is like fundamental science that climate that scientists have understood for 100 years or more yeah and 
And there's this just phenomenal group of interdisciplinary scientists working together to continually define what that energy imbalance number is and what level of CO2 in the atmosphere would correct that energy imbalance. Like, what do we have to get back to? And they continue to come up with the number 350. We have to get below 350 parts per million. Yeah. You know, when I ask her or any scientist the question, like, what do you think 1.5 is is safe? Like, do you think we can save these levels? And they're all like, no, it's it's totally dangerous and catastrophic. That sets a precedent not only for cases like Olson's, but for policy, too. If courts start to codify those targets, suddenly it becomes harder and harder to push for policies that align with science and human rights rather than politics. We'll be following that trend here and also on our new spinoff show, Damages, which is launching next month. On Damages, we'll be following the hundreds of climate cases making their way through courts all over the globe at the moment. Stay tuned after the credits for a quick trailer with more on that show. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening as always, and we'll see you next time. Drilled is an original Critical Frequency production. Our producer is Jules Bradley, mixing and mastering by Peter Duff. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Our artwork is by Matthew Fleming. The show is reported and written by me, Amy Westervelt. If you'd like to support our work, you can do that at patreon.com slash drilled. That will also get you access to ad-free episodes and exclusive merchandise. So check that out. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. There's a reason courtroom dramas stay on TV forever. They're dramatic. You've got the salty lawyers. Well, the First Amendment doesn't protect fraud and deception. Why would you take a failing company as a partner to build your country's future on? And the expert witnesses. They were giving millions of dollars to other entities to support the idea that the CO2 greenhouse was a hoax. And look, people don't file lawsuits, at least the kinds that you go to court over for months and months and months, unless they feel really wronged and are ready to fight. In reality, what both sides really want is more power. To me, it was like, bring it on, you know? And I'm not gonna back down to a fight. I'm not gonna back down. Not when it's right, you know? And not when people are being hurt. Right now, around 200 court cases are making their way through legal systems around the world with one goal, to hold companies and governments accountable for their roles in the climate crisis. They hinge on different legal strategies, but they're all fighting for one plaintiff. It's all of us and life on this planet. Opponents of Enbridge Energy's Line 3 oil pipeline that's being replaced across northern Minnesota are taking a unique legal approach to try to halt construction. ExxonMobil's subsidiary pays no tax. They've been given these tax breaks. 
in addition to taking out 87.5% of Guyana's oil. You're not allowed to lie. When you know that you have a dangerous product and you're lying about it, that's a tort. And sometimes they win. The decision in agenda was a huge breakthrough because it was an example of a national court actually enforcing an obligation of a government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the national level. No court had ever done that before. You have to take them to court to enforce law. And it looks like we're going to be able to enforce tribal law and tribal court against the state. So we use their ordinances and we find uh, Shell and ConocoPhillips in ordinance court in Madison County, Illinois, for putting benzene on people's property. Welcome to Damages, a new kind of legal drama. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is a podcast about a crime against humanity and the quest to bring the world's biggest climate criminals to justice. 